You know, at first I thought this was just another boring one about a man killing his wife. Sadly, how often do we hear that story? But as it turns out, this one was way more interesting from a historical perspective than I thought it would be. Who wants to hear about forensic science in the 1930s? Because I sure do. Welcome to the creepiest sleepover. I'm Kat, and I am generally so exhausted of hearing stories about men killing their wives. Like, just don't get married then? Marriage isn't easy, but it's not hard to, you know, not kill your spouse. I also want to thank you guys for your patience. Um, I initially took one week off because I had a real bad mental health week, and then... I had to take another week off because there's some demon stomach virus going around where I live and my daughter brought it home and then got me and then got my husband and then got my stepson. So we were all like just laid out for a week and it was terrible. So yeah, but I'm all better now, thankfully, and hopefully I will be back every week for the foreseeable future. So Buck Ruxton, randomly selected from the book 501 Infamous True Crime Stories, page 174. If you're curious, I didn't even read the page. I just got the name and gave it a gook. Buck Ruxton was an Indian-born man whose birth name I will not try to pronounce because I don't want to be culturally insensitive, and it is difficult. I've tried a lot. (laughs) As it turns out, it's not so much his name people remember about this crime, but It really is about the, at the time, advanced forensic techniques that were used to solve the crime. I thought about the show Bones a lot while I was researching this case. I really loved that show, and not just because David Boreanaz was on Buffy and Angel, which I also love. Um, He wasn't even my favorite, Angela was, because I, too, am a weird, arty type that's also interested in science. I'm not as cool as anyone on that show, though. hate to break it to you. Anyway. Ruxton would eventually come to be known as the savage surgeon responsible for the jigsaw murders or the bodies under the bridge. Once again, why the cool names? It really isn't fair. Anyway, bodies under the bridge is obvious. Jigsaw murders is because, well, they had to put together the remains like a jigsaw puzzle. Savage surgeon, he was a fucking doctor. Of course, he was a fucking doctor. Ruxton was apparently a sensitive kid with very few friends. Excuses. Excuses. All of them. Like, how many times have we heard about some dude, and it's almost always a dude, who was sensitive and had no friends and all that bullshit? I don't care. Don't fucking murder people. It isn't that hard. So this lame fucker went to the University of Bombay and got his Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery. After he graduated, he got a job at a hospital in Bombay specializing in medicine. It actually said that, which, like, isn't that all hospitals? Uh, Midwifery and gynecology. I don't think I would have wanted this dude anywhere near my lady bits, or any bits, really. In May of 1925, Ruxton found himself in an arranged marriage with a Parsi woman. I couldn't find much at all about this marriage, 
Actually, I found literally nothing aside from the fact that it was arranged and that when Ruxton moved to Britain in 1926, he concealed all evidence of this marriage. I don't know much about the culture of arranged marriages and stuff, but I do know that there are some arranged marriages that are perfectly happy. I'm going to go ahead and assume this one was not because Ruxton sucks. When he moved to Britain, he changed his name to Gabriel Hakim and attended London's University College Hospital. He eventually moved to Edinburgh to try to get a fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons. He failed his entrance exams. Sucks for him, but also sucks for literally everyone because the General Medical Council ended up granting him permission to practice medicine based on his history in Bombay. I don't know how they, like, confirmed any of that. I mean, it's not like it was the Stone Age. They had phones, but I just feel like it would be harder, actually, to do something like this now than it was back then. He then legally changed his name to Buck Ruxton. While he was in Edinburgh, he met a woman named Isabella Van S, who managed a cafe in town. Legally, at least, her name was Van S because she had married a Dutchman in 1919. However, in her personal life, she went by her maiden name, which was Care. Apparently, she and Ruxton fell in love, and when he decided to return to London to open his own practice, she went with him. She gave birth to their first child, Elizabeth, in 1929, and in 1930, Ruxton opened his own medical practice in Lancaster, Lancashire, at 2 Dalton Square. Despite how he would end up being known, at the time he got a reputation as a compassionate and caring doctor. He would waive fees for patients who were sick but couldn't afford the treatment, and he was respected and liked in town. His practice was really successful, and Isabella gave birth to two more children, daughter Diane in 1931 and son William in 1933. With three children to manage, they hired a live-in nanny slash housekeeper, Mary Jane Rogerson. I'm not sure if it just started around this time or if it was always like this, but the relationship between Isabella and Buck was really rocky. I'm assuming it was probably always like this because abusive fucks don't change their colors. Ruxton would constantly accuse Isabella of cheating on him, and he would alternate between fits of rage and crying uncontrollably. Isabella would take the kids and leave once in a while, but would always come back. Even nowadays, it's hard to leave an abusive relationship, so I can't imagine what it must have been like for a woman in the 1930s with far fewer options than we have now. Buck would call her crying, and she would go back home. Eventually, it did become too much, and Isabella went to the police, saying that he was beating her. The police did their jobs and investigated, but she went back to Buck. It's so depressing that I could tell this story, like, a million times from a million different people. It happens too often. In September of 1935, Isabella went to Edinburgh to visit her family with her sister. They traveled with another couple, the Edmondsons. This made Buck big mad. He was convinced that Isabella was cheating on him with Robert Edmondson. On September 14th, Isabella went with her sisters to the Blackpool Illuminations, which is a lights festival that happens in Blackpool every year, even to this day, apparently. She left Blackpool around 11.30 p.m. and arrived back at Dalton Square early the next morning. She had no idea that Buck would be home waiting and would fly into a rage when she came home. It's likely that he strangled her to unconsciousness or possibly death before beating and stabbing her. Then he did the same thing to Mary Jane Rogerson. 
either because she witnessed the crime or because he was afraid that she would discover what happened. Or maybe he just hated women. I don't know. Now, before you think that maybe this was a crime of passion, you should definitely know that the day before Isabella returned home from Blackpool, Buck went to the charwomen, which are part-time housekeepers, I had to Google that, uh, that worked for him and told them not to come to the house because Isabella and the kids were away in Edinburgh. After the murders, he took the kids to a dentist that he knew well and asked the couple to watch his kids for the day. Once he was free of the kids, instead of a normal parent who, like, I don't know, takes a fucking nap or reads a book or something when they have kid-free time, because kid-free time is rare, let me tell you, uh, he went home and dismembered and mutilated both of the bodies. Jesus fucking Christ. On September 29th, 1935, roughly two weeks after the murders, Susan Haynes Johnson was out taking a nice, leisurely walk in the fall weather when she peered over the parapet of an old bridge and saw a bundle of fabric with a decomposing arm inside. Why does anyone ever go outside? Just stay inside all the time. At least there you don't have to worry about finding a fucking dead body. At least probably. I hope so anyway. She did the right thing and she called the cops, who searched the stream and other surrounding rivers that connected to it. They found two heads and four more bundles that contained more body parts. All of the parts were wrapped in pillowcases, bed sheets, and newspapers with the dates on them. Murderers are so bad at hiding their crimes. So here comes the 1930s forensic science. The remains were examined by John Gleister Jr. and Gilbert Miller. They determined that the 70, 70, 70 sections of body parts discovered belonged to two different women of different heights and ages, and that the mutilation had been carried out by someone who had extensive anatomical knowledge in order to try to hide the identities of the deceased. It had been done with a surgical knife and not an axe or some other kind of blade. The eyes, lips, ears, and quite a bit of soft tissue had been removed. Um, the two of them speculated that some sections had been removed in order to get rid of birthmarks or easily identifiable scars. Also, in truly horrific fashion, the fingertips had been removed from at least one of the hands. That is gross. I'm looking at my fingers right now, and that is gross. The bodies were transported to the anatomy department at the University of Edinburgh and treated to prevent any further decomposition and destroy the maggot infestation. Ew. Like, I know decomposing bodies are gross and stuff, but it doesn't stop me from getting grossed out every time. An entomologist named Alexander Mearns from Glasgow was called, and he used forensic entomology to determine the age of the maggots and the developmental stages of the pupa in order to figure out the time of death. He also found that the pupa came from a particular species of blowfly called Califora vicina, and because of that particular species, the bodies could not have been where they were discovered for any longer than two weeks. The autopsy doctors figured out that the mutilation of the bodies would have taken about eight hours to complete. Eight hours. Eight. <sighs> this dude spent eight hours chopping up bodies with a surgical knife. Oh, I hate this guy so much. Anyway, that was a outburst. 
So it would have taken about eight hours and that both bodies had been drained of blood before it had been done. This would explain why. The day after the murders, Buck asked one of his neighbors to come over and help him prepare for the decorators. Mrs. Hampshire was a patient of his and she and her husband went to the Ruxton house to, I don't know, move furniture? What do you do? I'm not rich enough to have a decorator. What do you do to prepare for the decorators? When the case went to trial, Mrs. Hampshire testified that several sections of the floor had had carpet removed and that there were some sections of floor covered with straw or hay, most of which was poking out of the underneath of a locked bedroom door. Buck even gave the Hampshires some stained stuff, like a jacket and I think some rugs, that they could keep as long as they removed the stains. I guess that's one way to get rid of evidence. In typical idiot murderer fashion, Ruxton went to the police five days before the first discovery under the bridge and told them that his wife had once again left him. Aw, boo-hoo for you. He also went to the parents of Mary Jane Rogerson and told them that Mary Jane had had an affair and ended up pregnant. He said that Isabella had discreetly taken her to have an abortion, which was illegal at the time, of course, because why would we ever have safe abortions? (laughs) That's a rant for another day. Um, He asked them not to go to the police because, well, illegal abortion. A couple of weeks went by and the Rogersons hadn't heard from their daughter, so they went to Ruxton again on October 1st. This time, He said that Isabella and Mary Jane had taken about 30 pounds from the safe and went off. He said that he was sure that they would return once they had spent their money on whatever frivolous things us dumb women spend money on. Thankfully, the Rogersons weren't idiots, and they went to the police to file a missing persons report. The cops did some asking around and landed on Ruxton as their primary suspect because goddamn is he bad at covering his tracks. He wrapped the bodies in newspapers and stuff from around the house, for fuck's sake. Like, come on, this is Robert Durst level of stupidity. He was arrested on October 12th and questioned thoroughly, during which he came up with a ton of dumb excuses and actually provided a handwritten paper titled My Movements to account for his whereabouts during the time of the murder, as if that would be sufficient. This guy is either super cocky or super dumb, and probably both. There was enough concrete evidence to charge him with the murder of Mary Jane the next day, on October 13th, and on November 5th, he was charged with the murder of Isabella as well, after her remains were identified through forensic anthropology, just like in Bones. In this case, they superimposed an image of an x-ray of the skull over a picture of Isabella when she was alive. Later, uh, Professor James Cooper Brash would construct replicas of the feet of the victims, using a flexible glycerin substance or something. And he placed them in shoes that belonged to the women, and they fit like fucking Cinderella. The case went to trial in March of 1936. Ruxton's defense attorney claimed that the bodies were misidentified. I guess a lack of faith in science existed in the 30s, too. And Ruxton was the only witness to testify on his own behalf. He did not come off well and basically sobbed and lost his shit all the time. He gave contradicting statements when he was cross-examined and just really sucked on the stand. Needless to say, the jury came back with a guilty verdict after only one hour. He was executed by hanging on the morning of May 12, 1936. (laughs) 
Well, another day, another man murdering his wife. Hopefully I don't do another one of these for a while. Although this one, again, was pretty interesting from a scientific standpoint. There's even more than what I talked about on the actual show because my word count was getting kind of high and I was like, uh, maybe I should cut back a little. <laughs> I always think of 30s police work being a lot more psychology and getting statements from witnesses rather than, you know, other science. Apparently, I think the 30s were the Dark Ages or something like that. Might as well be the Cretaceous, for all I know. I want to thank you guys again for your patience. Taking a week off, much less two, was really tough for me to do. Oh, that rhymed. <laughs> I want to be consistent and put out a quality podcast, but at the same time, I need to acknowledge my physical and my mental health as well, and I'll always advocate for that. Everyone needs to take care of themselves, no matter what that might look like for you. Next week... I had the Denver airport on the schedule, but given that I have a layover in Denver in a couple of weeks, I'm going to put that one off until I get back. So instead, we'll talk about another cryptid, the elusive Bigfoot. Hairy man beast who kills people, or just some chill dude who wants to hang out in the woods and maybe smoke some pot. Let's find out. You can find me on Facebook at The Creepiest Sleepover. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at TCS underscore pod. You can support the show on Coffee, Coffee. I still don't know how to say it. The link is on the link tree that is on all of my social media. Theme music is by Chris at Half Keb Studios. It felt really good to say all of that again and get in front of the microphone. See you guys next week. Sleep tight. <laughs>